Welcome to The Road Back to You. Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stubiel. And I'm Ian Cron. And we're so glad that you're listening today. Welcome to The Road Back to You. We hope you're doing well. We are. Ian and I are in Nashville on a crisp, cool, beautiful day. How you doing, friend? Man, I'm good. I'm really good. I am uh, I got up early this morning. I went for a run, and it's kind of got that fall, and there was like uh, a little bit of a that brisk thing going on, and there was all that smoke. There was like fireplace, you know, like a woods, wood, wood, uh, Maybe it's from the spires in North Carolina. Maybe that's not a good thing. But, yeah, but I, got, I got to tell you, it was, it was just a beautiful fall morning running and smelling those wood fires going. I was, I'm hoping it's fireplaces, yeah. not states yeah. that are alight yeah, no at kidding. the moment. How are you? I'm pretty good. I need to go home. You know, yeah. I've been on the road for six days. I'm missing Joe. And um, I, it's I'm, I'm on the downhill side of this trip. All right. Well, the next person we have on today is going to lift you up. Yeah. Are you excited? I am excited. Sarah Bessie, author, blogger, speaker, um, is with us today. She's the author of Jesus Feminist, and then last year, a wonderful book, Out of Sorts, Making Peace with an Evolving Faith. Um, And, you know, she's a nine on the Enneagram. She's a peacemaker, and that may be the most nine title of a book I've heard in a long time. Exactly. And she's the mother of four. That's right. Mother of four. And married. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot. Nines have the least energy of all the numbers on the Enneagram, so that's a lot for her to deal with. And Jim Chapey, our producer, is an eight, which means he has the most amount of energy in the same triad, right? Right. Um, of any other number on the Enneagram. What right. Are, we're all so crazy different. Hi, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Ian. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being on our show. Um, tell me how old your children are and uh, what their names are, and tell me a little bit about your husband. Oh, sure. Um, well, my husband's name is Brian. We've been married for nearly 16 years, and um, we have uh, four children. My, I used to call them the tinies, but I'm trying to get out of that habit because they're all very tall. <laughs> and so they're they're kind of growing out of that stage, and so um, it's it's a shift I'm having to make almost in how I think about them, but. My eldest uh, daughter is 10, and she's um, nearly as tall as I am now, actually. She's 5'4 already, and she's, um, she's 10. And then my son, Joseph, is 8. Um, and then we have another daughter. Her name is Evelyn, and she is nearly 6. And then we had um, uh, one last little baby that's uh, 18 months old now, and her name is Margaret. We call her Maggie. Uh, the older kids call her Princess Margaret, so I think that we're really setting her up to really understand appropriately her place in the, <laughs> in the world. That's really good. <laughs> right? And there's like one last little baby, and we've all made a fool of ourselves over her, and it's just, you know, it, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> so this is an instructive moment, because as a two, your first question was, yeah. I want to know about your kids' names. I want to know the story of your life. I want to know about your husband. And I'm a four, so my first question, if, if it had fallen to me, was I want you to tell me about the darkest period in your life. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was just kind of like, okay, well, this is from the instructive moment here, you know? So, hey, um, 
Sarah was so great. Lisa's Lisa's Dan warmed me up a wee bit then. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You know, we're excited too today because you're familiar with the Enneagram. And I want to hear the story about how you became familiar with it and how it's kind of impacted your life. Uh, Sure. Well, you know what? I came to the Enneagram um, almost reluctantly. Uh, I'm not someone who usually likes personality typing at all in any in any way. I've always felt really restricted by it. I've felt like it's, you know, the box is too small, and I felt like I saw myself across a lot of different, you know, types or whatever else it was. And then a girlfriend of mine got really into the uh, Myers-Briggs uh, personality types. Um, and so I kind of was like, oh, well, this isn't so bad. You know, I'm start- starting to see some things. And then I got introduced to a girlfriend of mine whose name is uh, Lee Kramer, and she used to run a business called the Enneagram Coach. Yes, I know. And so her. she sat down and did a typing session with me, like more the narrative one. So instead of you going on the internet and filling in all the stuff, like they sit there and do the, you know, more of a narrative storytelling kind of typing situation. And she had told me, she said, you know, you'll find your type when you hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much what happened. I felt like when she was reading all of them and we were going through them, I was like, oh, I just hope I'm anything but that nine. That just sounds like the worst. I just, all of those, you know, bad habits or the the sin patterns or whatever else just seemed so um, too familiar, I suppose is the best way to put it. And so I kind of almost set the Enneagram aside for almost about six months because I just thought, you know, I'm not really ready to, I guess it was too illuminating. It was almost too um, too much, you know, like when you stand in front of a light that's way too bright for your eyes and you almost have to adjust for a little while. Um, and that's what the experience of, of finding out my type was for me, where I just almost had to sit with it for a while and then almost begin to enter into it as a spiritual practice, um, which, of course, I find out later is actually a very nine thing to do. Um, you know, and, and, and have this attitude of almost like oneness with crisis. I was kind of like exploring it and almost seeing it as like this contemplative ac- exercise of almost personal spiritual direction. And that's when it really began to sort of open up to me. And I read more, um, you know, like Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram, and that was really illuminating. And um, then, of course, your guys' book, uh, The Road Back to You, was fantastic and so helpful as well. Um, and so that's kind of been the, the, a slow burn almost on it and, and a, um, acclimating to it, mm. I suppose. One of the things that uh, is in your bio is you say, it's my way of leaving the light on for the ones who are wandering and wondering in their faith or spiritual journey. And I love that, and it's beautifully written, but I want to talk about with you the fact that nines have space for almost everything and almost everyone. It's like they can leave the light on for whatever comes. Why do you think that is? You know, I'm not sure why that is. And, and uh, uh, you know, there's there's something that I think is really, um, there's, you know, like most things with the Enneagram, there's the, the really positive strength of that, and then there's the shadow side of it at times. Um, and so I think that as as I've grown up and as I've, you know, hopefully spiritually matured a little bit, you know, that's, that's debatable. But um, there's this sense of, um, of of really being able to hold that space. You know, and, and really being able to fully enter into someone's experiences to understand why they are where they are. Um, there's a, a really deep well of compassion um, that I think that is, um, is is deeply shaped, of course, by your spirituality, right? You see everybody as the, as the beloved of Christ, and you're able to understand um, and empathize, I think, on a, on a greater level than perhaps um, you would otherwise. And so that can sometimes be really complicating, 
Um, and other times it can be really illuminating. And so a, a big reason why I wanted to write um, that book out of sorts was because I was almost wanting to write the book that I wished I would have had. Something that I didn't want to burn down my old self. I didn't want to caricaturize the people who had introduced me to Jesus or who had introduced me to faith. And yet I needed to grapple with that in a way that was consistent and healthy with my need to hold space for kind of where they were and who they were and who they are now and where I am and where I'm headed or even people who land very differently than me. I mean, the the point of the book was never about me saying, you don't know what to think about the Bible or about church or about scripture or about this particular issue. So here's a nice new set of answers for you. I mean, the book for me was always about saying, you need to lean into those questions and you need to, to pursue that and, and, and begin to, you know, almost give yourself permission to recognize that, that there's an invitation waiting in that struggle. Um, and that, of course, is something I wish someone would have told me because it took me too long to get there. Yeah, gosh, it, uh, just even hearing you, you speak and the, your, your tone of voice and knowing my wife, who's a nine and who is my beloved, um, just knowing I could hear the struggle. And I hear that struggle in nine voices often, which is how do I disagree and enter into conflict of maybe theology? And how do I be grateful? And, and you know, how do I do this without getting disconnected from people? And uh, kind of disturbing the inner sea of tranquility that I want to maintain, and yet I have to move out. And so I just, I just want to also say to you that I think it's really brave for you and for all nines when they do step out and say, I got to do this regardless of what discomfort mm-hmm. it might create and dissonance it might create for me inside. No, I think that you're right. I mean, there's something really key, I think, to that. And honestly, I feel like that's a huge part of what I do now. When I do travel and speak and I and I meet with, you know, different communities all over the place, whether it's about my even my first book, Jesus Feminist, or or this next one, people are always asking me, how do I disagree well? How do I um how do I move on from who I used to be while still hopefully maintaining some relationships? How do I honor the struggle or the the journey that I'm on in a way that means that I can hopefully disagree well with people? And I think that we're in a, a place both um, you know, as a church and I think that you guys as a nation in America are in this place of saying, How do we disagree mm. well? Um and I think that nines have a lot to say to that, you know, because there is um there is that you know, when, when you're healthy nine, um, you know, there's a way to hopefully engage with, with conflict or disagreement uh, in a way that, that makes people feel heard and loved and, and moves towards a resolution, hopefully. One of the things I say about nines when I'm teaching is that it, they're really great to be with because they're not so stuck in their own mindset that they can't really hear other people or that they can't really listen for what other people are trying to say. And I... Um, I wonder if we treat children who are nines with a, a little lack of comfort with their holding two sides and we say to them, you have to choose. You, you have mm. to choose between this and this. You have to choose between A and B. And so it's almost like you're born a non-dualistic thinker and the world kind of makes you into one. And then part of the spiritual journey is to be non-dualistic again. Does that ring true mm-hmm. to you? No, absolutely. Absolutely it does. And, you know, there's there's other aspects of, you know, even in my childhood, like my, my parents always would joke, uh, my sister 
you know, I'm, I'm not 100% of her type, but it's, it's definitely, you know, not as conflict averse as mine. <laughs> so whenever, whenever we would disagree with our parents, she would go to the mat with them on, you know, justice, and we need to discuss this, and we need to come to, you know, agree. Whereas I would nod and listen and say thank you very much, and then go do whatever I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, there exactly. would be no conflict, but I would still have that underlying stubbornness and passive aggressiveness, and I would be like, thank you, wonderful, that's fantastic, and they would feel really good, and then I'd go and do whatever it is I wanted to do anyway. And so I think that there's some elements of that in, you know, in, in, in a lot of the nines and even that non-dualistic thing. I think um, growing up in, um, you know, a, a home that was a first-generation uh, Christian home and my parents were very desperate for right and wrong answers and very eager to know the right way to do things, uh, which can often be a very dualistic thing. I struggled with that a lot, especially as I began to, you know, developmentally, you know, kind of move into more, you know, teenager and uh, and even to my my twenties, where I was always saying, there's there's it's more than black and white, and 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 that was that you know something that was always a struggle. You know, uh, Suzanne and I both have children who are eights, and one of the things I I often say to my eight, you know is you know gray is a color. <laughs> it's it's really it's on the spectrum. You need, you need to trust us on that. You know. Yeah. Um, so we have a we have this audience that uh, this growing family of people, and we're encouraged because we we do think we. We need to more understand each other in this world and the, the different ways that, that people see. And no other number on the Enneagram is better than nines for making for, for having that particular gift of seeing the world through everyone else's eyes. But I want you to imagine, uh, because nines at times have trouble identifying their own number, um, but I want you to imagine an audience of people out there, and you had to really describe what it's like to be a nine so that nines could really get their number if they were listening to you. How would you describe what that's like? Hmm. Um, you know, there's a few different things. I think one of them is, um, well, it was funny because a joke that I've almost always told is that one of my spiritual gifts is being passive aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And so, it's not always, I mean, my husband, my sister, my mother, all these people who are in, in deep relationships with me, they are just like, there are no bounds. And so when I know when I'm not being healthy, because that, that becomes really, really strong, that's probably not the answer that everybody is wanting to hear, though. <laughs> I mean, I almost felt like I, I immediately identified perhaps more with, with things like, oh, passive aggressive. And, and even um, when I'm feeling unhealthy, this tendency towards this, you know, almost root sin of sloth, mm. right, of numbness and of, of, of inertia that can kind of come on me at times. But I think the places where I really began to see, um, you know, the peacemaker role was in, you know, in relationships, right? And, um, and even in my spirituality, because I, I, I tend to, to, to lean pretty heavily into that, um, that sense of, I, I, you know, of, of almost mysticism or this sense of contemplativism. Um, I think that nines are really open. You know, they're very, uh, they're, they're open to other people. They're open to, to God. They're open to nature. Um, that there is not really this division between what's, um, you know, sacred and what's secular. They're really able to kind of hold those tensions and really pull all those things in together. I think that minds also um, really do yearn to make peace. Right. It's not just that they want to just keep the peace. I think that that's an unhealthy thing that minds can do is just, you know, almost pretend that it's fine. We're fine if nobody's in conflict, we're fine. And they can mistake that for peace. But then there is this deep rooted thing of wanting to see peace and justice and, and having a, a heart for that. Um, once they begin to become more healthy, and I think this has been a huge part of my own spiritual journey, to be honest, was learning that I had a voice um, and learning that uh, learning how to use that, you know, imperfectly at times. 
but that's been, you know, a huge part of spiritual growth for me was learning to wake up and kind of almost reclaim this idea of, you know, oh, you have a voice and you have some authority and you have, you have a place that you could have in, in, in this. Um, I think that we're also, you know, definitely creatures of habit. We're people who um, like things the way to do things the way they've done. We find a lot of comfort in ordinary things. I always joke that I'm often very happy because I'm very easily pleased. <laughs> that's good. That's I think really that's good. nines, right? right? Like we're often right. very easily pleased by those things. And and so, you know what, it can be a really peaceful and, and happy place in our heads. That that was very well done. You might be our new poster child for Yeah, humans. absolutely. In fact, I, I thought maybe we should just go downstairs and get a coffee and let her keep yeah, going. Just because let her teach if, if, if there are nines out there who are uncertain about their number, they're another foot closer anyhow to, exactly. to, to knowing who they are. I um, want to talk a little more about you finding your voice. Did that happen through a series of events that you can point to? Was there a turning point where you thought, you know, what I think matters? Is there a, or did you just kind of slowly grow into that? I think it was definitely a slow, a slow growth for me. It was deeply tied to writing for me. Um, I know that a lot of nines do find a lot of, um, uh, of awareness or awakening that happens through art or through, you know, different mediums of create, you know, creativity or those types of things. And so for me, writing was always that place. It almost became this altar where I met with God and wrote through, you know, major spiritual, you know, growth and, and transformation and change and, um, you know, which has its benefits and has its drawbacks. But at the end of the day, I, I you know, there, it was this slow and steady thing of, of learning, um, I think that learning to reclaim my voice was deeply tied to this idea of spiritual maturity, of, of uh, my, my journey with God, um, you know, learning my identity in Christ. I mean, all those different things, like I can't really pull any of them apart. And yet at the same time, I still struggle to this day with feeling like I have a voice. I yeah. still struggle with feeling like, um, you know, and, and oftentimes when I'm speaking out or I'm speaking with a lot of strength or a lot of conviction or a lot of courage, that's almost an act of faith as opposed to like a deep-seated knowing, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Do you uh, identify strongly with either wing, either eight or one? You know, I see a little bit of both in uh, in both of the wings. I haven't done a whole deep dive into it yet. I mean, I feel like I can see sides of, of either one of them. Um, I probably would say that I lean a little bit more towards the one because I do tend to have a little bit more of a sense of, um, you know, around energy. And I'm, I'm also a little bit more, um, I'm pretty, you know, orderly. Uh, I like things done in, in, in the way, and I like to get things accomplished and done. And, um, you know, and I'm very uh, committed to a lot of peacekeeping or peacemaking efforts, right? So those things of like, you know, of social justice, of wanting to make things right, of saying, okay, here's, here's what God's dream is for the world. How can I contribute and be, be a part of that? How can I co-create with God in that? And I see a little bit more of that on the one side, but then to be honest, I mean, I can definitely be more outgoing and stubborn and, and see a bit of the eights, which I, I think is, is maybe more behavioral. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. You know, um, eight, eights, nines, and ones are uh, in the anger uh, triad. I'm speaking to our folks out there who may be less familiar than, than you, Sarah. Um, and of course, they express themselves so differently. We we start our workshops with eights, uh, and then we go to nines, and that's, uh, of course, Suzanne's genius because they're so different that to see them side by side really hooks everybody in the room to say, "I'm sticking around" because there are apparently a lot of different people in the world. And I, um, eight nines and ones are we say are self forgetting people. Um, 
you know, uh, eights uh, forget their innocence, that childhood tenderness and vulnerability, and their need to take care of themselves, rest a little bit every now and then. Um, nines, um, I think one of the ways that they express their self-forgetting is through merging. And so, um, I don't know what you might say about it, but I love the spirituality part of the, the Enneagram, and I just think nines are some of the most uh, naturally contemplative, that's the word you used and that struck me, or bent toward the mystical, because merging can become union when they're healthy. Mm. I, I, well, I just want to say, I also think there's a bent toward the mystical because they don't argue with things. Mm. They don't argue with what presents itself to them. They just look at it for what it is. It's it's a very interesting way of seeing. Yeah. So, Sarah, can you speak to the spirituality of the Enneagram for you and, and how it's helped, perhaps, or somehow another? Yeah, what's your... How has it been used by you as a spiritual formation tool? Well, it definitely has been. I mean, I think that that's one of those things that um, that was almost helpful, that was incredibly helpful for me, because uh, I grew up in a, you know, third wave charismatic, you know, uh, in, in Canada kind of movement, which was, you know, that happy, clappy, very, you know, demanding the, the, the presence and inbreaking of God and, you know, chasing after things like healing and speaking in tongues and signs and wonders. And, you know, I, I, I both loved it and struggled with, with it. Um, at the same time. And so, but yet that was, I can't argue with the fact that I found myself there. And so when I go back and look at it through the lens of, you know, my, my Enneagram self, I, I see this pull towards those, a lot of those more mystical practices or those, those aspects of, you know, that oneness with Christ and, um, and even things like speaking in tongues, which is not something that I talk about with a lot of people, to be honest, because it seems so bizarre. But yet you have these experiences and you have these things that almost seem transcendent. Um, but then when I struggled with my original church and, and walked away from it, walked away from uh, church altogether for six years, and I began to find God in places that I that were so different than that, and yet still were in that same uh, spiritual formation way. Like when I found my way into the Anglican Church, um, the mystery, the uh, the ritual, the uh, liturgy, the language, the, I mean, all those things just deeply fed me. And then there were aspects of, of, you know, nature and of being able to be out in, in the world and people and people who were so different from me. And so, I mean, pulling all of those different experiences together and seeing this, you know, incredible tapestry being woven of an encounter with God um, was really incredibly healing for me. It helped me better understand my origin story, you know, mm. where I had, I had come from and how those things had come through. So when the Enneagram sort of entered my life as a spiritual formation tool, it felt like it was the first time, and, and you know, and one thing I will say too about the Enneagram that I love is that almost nobody in spirituality, except for maybe some really, you know, angry fundamentalists, really talk well about sin. Mm. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't really talk well about, um, you know, our besetting sins or the, the things that are damaging both us and our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Um, and the Enneagram is almost the only spiritual formation tool that I've worked with that to me really is illuminating in that area where it does say, you know what, here are the places that are damaging you, that are damaging the, your relationship with God, damaging your relationship with humanity, with the people whom you love. Um, and then, you know what, you're off and, and going. So why don't you just talk a little bit about sloth since you brought it up? <laughs> <laughs> 
No, you two are just being mean. <laughs> you know, you open a door, we walk through it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, you know, I think that some of the flaws that are in, I think that the, the sin pattern that most, um, haunts me within the, uh, the Enneagram nine is, uh, both sloth and being passive aggressive. There you go. Um, and, and so this, with the sloth aspect of it, I mean, that's something that I have, I see when I know now that when I see myself numbing out and, and seeking, you know, um, you know, things that will help me almost retreat or hide from tension or hide from conflict or hide from things that are difficult or things that are hard to hear, um, that I'm not, I'm not rising, you know, that I'm, I'm using those as an, as an excuse. It's almost like stuffing cotton wool in my ears, right. To just pretend that it's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine when it's not. That's very um, good. so that awareness has been really helpful. Doesn't mean I always do it well, <laughs> at least I'm aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> And then the passive aggressive side is is another big one for sure, particularly relationally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're both we're again we're both yes. married to nines, yeah, so we, we're on the other end of that. Yeah, you know, um, I want to just tell anyone out there who's who's listening and maybe just learning about the enneagram that right now you're getting schooled in nine so well. Like Suzanne <laughs> and I are looking at each other, sort of like in amazement because you you you're really just describing just one thing after another that characterizes. Uh, what it's like uh, to to be a nine, and one of the things that you just did that has been so helpful for me in my own personal journey of of spiritual growth, and I think for many people is, you know, so often what we portray to others as a virtue, like peacemaking, mm-hmm. yeah. which is a virtue. I'm not saying it's not, but often, you know, it's really what we're really doing is we're is we're sending out a little camouflage here. What we're really saying is, well, you know, I'm a peacemaker. That's a virtue, and, and then I. But, but the truth is, is that sometimes uh, your efforts to make peace in the world are really nines selfish. I mean, you're really sure. protecting your own uh, interior peace. It's really about you know, your own interests that are at work. And that's true for every number, everybody, not just for nines, that, you know, oh, gosh, our, what we portray often as a virtue is is really a, a problem. Yeah, you know, I can, I can look at people as a two and be helpful mm. and never, ever say that while I'm helping you, I'm expecting you to help me in return. Right. It's like, aren't I lovely and kind and generous? Yeah. 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 One of the hardest things for me as a two uh, was to admit that I don't love everybody, mm, right. you know, because we pretend to love everybody. That's what we put out. So enough about twos and back to you. Um, one more thing I want to talk about, like very specifically before we go uh, on to something else, and that is um, my husband is a, a nine who is a former Catholic priest, now a United Methodist pastor, and there is in him an innocence that my daughter, who's a nine, also has, and my son-in-law, who's a nine, also has, that's almost like what Richard Rohr would call a second naivete. It's like you, you grow up to a certain point, and then there's an event in your life that leads you into a second time of growing and naivete. Does that ring a bell with you, Sarah? <laughs> That is the entire first half, I think, of my second book is about the second naivete and that um, that idea, um, because I do feel like that's what happened. I remember um, 
you know, a, a big part for me of my spiritual formation and my growth is deeply tied to this idea within that's hidden within the Enneagram, um, the nines for people like me, which is even actually, you know, developing your anger a little right. bit, right. you know, because we tend to be really, really so, you know, we don't want to acknowledge that we're angry. We don't want to, you know, we're oftentimes we're very out of touch with it or, you know, we are keeping ourselves, you know, super busy to not look at the thing that's breathing in the corner of our eye. And so for me, you know, a lot of that was deeply tied to a lot of spiritual awakening for me um, that happened in my, in my twenties and my early thirties. Um, and then there was this, this, you know, reawakening that, that happened that ended up, um, you know, it was a, you know, tied to a lot of different points of struggle that I had with my faith. Um, what I thought about the Bible, what I thought about church, what I thought about church people, what I thought about Jesus, what I thought about, you know, all these different things that I was kind of wrestling with. And there was, there was a profound sense of being born again, all over again. Mm. Um, and, and I feel that I walk, um, in that now in a, in a really strong awareness of that sense of, of abundance and a new life and this sense of almost wonder about it. Um, because it was not, I don't know. I, it, it does sound really mystical when I try to put it into words. And so it sounds weak. I'm not really sure if I'm, I'm doing a, a good job of explaining it, I but there was you did a sense a, of you're doing a great wrestling job with it. And on the other side of that wrestle, there was a release. It's like when you go into the wilderness and then on the other side of that wilderness, not only is there deliverance, but you find that you loved it. Mm. That the very, the very thing about the wilderness that was so scary to you before became the thing that was the birthplace of your intimacy with God. And, uh, and that's, that's a big part of it. So, gosh, you've just given us so much great stuff. If we had (laughs) the actual diagram here of the Enneagram, this nine, you know, pointed diagram, uh, you would see the nine at the top and they have one foot, you know, kind of down on six and then the other foot down on three. And so that means three is the most conformist and six is the most nonconformist of the numbers on the Enneagram. And that puts nines in this position of ambivalence that affects decision making to, I mean, it's oftentimes people will say to a nine, gosh, I wish you were more decisive. Ambivalence is a, a feature of of uh, um, life for nines, a major feature. And um, how has that played out for you, if at all? You know, I I think the ambivalence is definitely my default mode, mm. for sure. Um, and even my sense of, and, and, and it's something that I would say um, sometimes can, like you were saying earlier, can have a shadow, you know, benefit almost, where it's like, well, it's fine. You know, and, and, and even I don't have, tend to have a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, and, and so that's something that, that can often, you know, I feel like is more maybe rooted in the Enneagram. And I'm talk, not talking about clinical anxiety. I'm talking about more like this. Yeah. Know, yeah. I often time. say if you want to worry with somebody like I don't don't choose a nine when I'm fretting and yes. <laughs> want to wring my hands about something. I have to call a friend. I can't go to Joe. Yeah. No, I don't think that we're we're not those people for people. Right. We tend to be very much like it's fine. It'll be fine. It will be fine. All manner of yeah. things will be well. You know, that yeah. kind of Julian of Norwich sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. That we kind of fit really easily embody. And so that's what makes the ambivalence, you know, such a natural thing for us. It's like, well, I could do this and I could do that. It would be fine. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, that well, can be infuriating for people who want some more decisiveness, for sure. Yes, it can, actually. Yes, actually. Yeah, we'll take a vote on that. Oh, look, it's two for two. Hey, listen, um, you know, I want to... Even in, in ministry, like, I'll be talking with people, and they'll say, you know, I'm at this church that doesn't affirm women in in leadership and in ministry. What should I do? And I'll, I will literally stand up there and argue both sides and say... You just need to make the decision that will, you know, most resonate with you. People are like, why are you not saying 100% what people should do or not? And I just have such a visceral reaction to the idea of telling people what to do and somehow um, stepping in. I, I believe so strongly that I shouldn't step into that role of the Holy Spirit in their life. Like, I don't want them to outsource that work to me. Yeah. I want them to go to God about it. I want them to go to the Holy Spirit. I want them to pray about it. I want them to get the revelation on their own. I don't want to step into that role of making the decision for them. Um, and I can pretty pretty easily argue either way, I suppose. That's so um, intriguing to me because my husband is such a good spiritual director, and he teaches in the spiritual direction program at Perkins School of Theology. And it's exactly because um, of everything you just said. You know, I kind of do want to help the Holy Spirit out when I'm helping people and <laughs> and not let them decide for themselves, but just suggest that, you know, you just need to do this and then your life's going to be so much better. Well, Sarah, I I am so glad to Hooray have had— Hooray for Sarah! Yeah. I'm so thankful to <laughs> have right had for you too. <laughs> the opportunity to have you on our show and your— um, uh, ability to articulate your nineness is going to be a great gift to our listeners. I'm thankful on their behalf. Yeah, me too. You you so beautifully kind of painted the picture of what I believe really. I mean, it, when you were describing, you know, nature and this unitive knowledge really of God and, and of also, I think that this awareness of God's urgent immediacy in all things, which I think is such a, a gift of nines. Thank you so much for, for being on our show and for the ministry and presence you have in the world. And for our listeners, I'm sure now that you're wanting to know, again, the title of the two books that uh, Sarah wrote. So one is Out of Sorts, Howard Books 2015, and the other is Jesus Feminist. And uh, your website is, tell us. SarahBessie.com. And that's the branch off point for, for all the things. So. Uh, and so that's S-A-R-A-H-B-E-S-S-E-Y dot com. Um, blessings on you, new friend. And peace. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bless you both. Thank you. Stay warm in Canada. I sure will. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Chafee, and our engineer is Brad Bass. Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer. Please visit our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country. And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Please join us next week. You don't want to miss it.